Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It sure seems like it's been a while since I was on the air last. But I must say, uh, during the time that I was off, I've seen even more results. And especially from this uh, current series that we are now into, um, I've seen now where there are about roughly um, about 44 uh, plays from uh, the intro to Andrew Waters's To the End of the World, Nathaniel Green, Charles Cornwallis, and The Race to the Dan. These results tell me that many of you, if not many of you, but all of you, are eager to learn something new about the American Revolution that you did not know beforehand, not just from a historical perspective, but more so from a regional um, matter. After all, I think it's fair to say that we should be reminded that while, yes, uh, the battles of Lexington and Concord, and even Bunker Hill itself, were all more of a regional conflict, considering that um, there, there were those in other colonies who uh, were not for separation from England, let alone engaging England in a, a militaristic um, format, we should keep in mind that when the war began, um, not everyone was on uh, the same page, and that it did start out as a regional uh, conflict. However, it is fair to say that even come 1778, most notably after June of 1778, that the war itself could be seen uh, to an extent as a regional conflict. How so? Well, the British weren't able to deliver the knockout blow in Boston. Uh, they left in uh, June of 1776, or uh, March of 1776, rather. <laughs> and then, of course, um, the British weren't able to achieve the, um, a true knockout blow uh, in the middle colonies by the middle of uh, 1778. So their only uh, last best chance for a knockout blow is going to be in the south. The southern colonies, that is. At some point, Britain's going to have to figure out how can we deliver this knockout blow, return, some nor return to normalcy, and get these subjects back under our control. Because the longer this conflict goes, the greater the problems will be 3,000 miles across the ocean in terms of Parliament wanting to fund this war. Yes, it's one thing to want to fund the war, but you better be able to not only win the war, but get your subjects back under control. Well, in this uh, particular uh, segment of To the End of the World, Nathaniel Green, Charles Cornwallis, and the Race to the Dan, we're going to learn about how Nathaniel Green um, earns this um, promotion. We're going to learn about his journey south. After all, it's not going to be one of those journeys that just happens overnight where he gets from point A to point B, that is, from origin to final destination, but it's going to be a destination that um, will um, see him meeting others, other people along the way whom will be of significant importance. And it will also be um, a journey that will, um, that will basically um, be one that is going to um, require instant uh, planning. It's going to require uh, constant thinking. It's going to require... A whole new set of thinking that had not been seen before, given that um, the terrain that he's going into is one that he's not dealt with before, but yet he knows 
that prior to arrival, he already knows that things have to be done differently. So let's fasten our seat belts and get ready for um, a, for um, a segment on uh, To the End of the World, Nathaniel Green, Charles Cornwallis, and the Race to the Dan by Andrew Waters. Our first leadoff question is going to be the following. What was significant about November 3rd, 1780? Of course, I know in the United States, when we think of uh, November, the very start of November, what's the first thing that would come to our minds? Election time. Well, in uh, November of 1780, we don't have anything called Election Day. And of course, when we think of Election Day in the United States, it's uh, the first Tuesday after the first Monday of November. So yes, uh, do any of you all, can any of you all think of what would have been so significant about November 3rd, 1780? Well, did it take place in um, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania? Did it take place in uh, Charleston, South Carolina? Or did it take place in Boston, Massachusetts? Well, part of the answer is that, uh, is that um, the significance of uh, November 3rd, 1780, uh, did uh, involve uh, Philadelphia, but it just so happens that Nathaniel Green departs from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania on November 3rd of 1780 by uh, going south to assume his new duties. And what are his new duties, folks? He's going to be, he has now become the Southern Continental Army's commander, new commander. I must point out that the Southern Continental Army has already seen multiple commanders, and each time a new commander has been in charge, the uh, outcome has not uh, been for the better. So prior to Nathaniel Green's uh, becoming a general, his rank was Major General. Not far from being general, but a Major General. Nathaniel Green was one of those uh, officers whom, uh, for some time, liked traveling light. Well, what I don't mean by traveling light here is, you know, not, you know, it would be easy for someone to say, well, if someone's traveling light, that means that they're not bringing a lot of equipment with them or a lot of um, essential necessities. They are uh, correct. But for Nathaniel Green, he is one of those um, men and the same could be said about other officers on the uh, Continental Army side. But Nathaniel Green is one of those officers who um, it prefers to travel in many of times when restrictions themselves weren't um, visible. In other words, you know, it's one thing to travel, but you just don't travel when you feel like traveling. There would have to be a reason for you to be uh, traveling uh, from point A to point B, you know, not just for general business, but in the case of a war, why would an officer need to be traveling from point A to point B? For recruiting purposes, in other words, an officer or a group of officers are going from point A to point B um, to recruit uh, those from the back country, those whom are in town, uh, basically to uh, keep morale up, uh, persuade these men that, hey, look, if you join the ranks of the uh, Continental Army, regardless of where you will um, be serving, um, if you um, stay within a year's time or longer, you know, we can uh, see to it that you, you know, get a nice sum of money, and maybe if you want to come move out west, 
to the, what we know as the Northwest Territory or the Ohio, along what we now know as the Ohio Valley as well, you know, that will add some form of incentive. So for Nathaniel Green, you know, he can, um, he can remember uh, that uh, growing up as a child or as a very young man that um, he would often venture alone into places that would intrigue him, like shops where, like say a book, well, we might think of in modern times as like a bookstore, but a shop that would uh, cater to uh, interests of his. Nathaniel Green is one of those men whom is very eager to learn. Uh, as a matter of fact, he never went to any kind of formal military schooling uh, or a military academy that we might know of, but he learned on the job what it took to become uh, an officer. You know, he had to pretty much start from the bottom, but he is work working his way up to the top. But Nathaniel Green is one of those men whom takes his roles very seriously. And why not? If you're going to be an officer, an officer of high-ranking status, it's not going to be handed to you. You've got to earn it, and you've got to prove it, and do all, an assortment of uh, tasks to uh, work your way up into the uh, rank uh, system of uh, rank. So for Nathaniel Green, his um, military rank, yes, prior to becoming general, was that of Major General. He liked traveling light, meaning that he enjoyed traveling in many of times where the restrictions weren't visible. And yes, as an adult, he sought to relive his past, where as a young man, he would uh, often venture alone into places intriguing him. So his new assignment really was um, one of... Um, something that would be opposite from his previous post. And if I'm not mistaken from our intro, what did we learn exactly that Nathaniel Green's uh, post was? I don't know if it was mentioned, but if it was, uh, pardon me for mentioning it again, because if, for some of you who have forgotten, I'll be more than happy to remind you all. Nathaniel Green's previous post was Quartermaster General. You know, he was uh, he was in charge of um, overseeing a multitude of tasks as a quartermaster general. Uh, basically, he was almost like a logistics coordinator. So Nathaniel Green is needing basically a break. It's all you know, he needs a new uh, path and he wants to be back in the action of the battlefield because he started out on the uh, battlefield. But then, you know, he got persuaded to do something differently and I'll. We'll find out here shortly uh, who might have been responsible for persuading Nathaniel Green to even become a quartermaster general. But it's not so much the um, post that he's wanting to get away from, it's the politics surrounding the post. You know, it's one thing to have a, a job of quartermaster general, but can you imagine all the politics that even Nathaniel Green is having to deal with at the onset of the war? I mean... All the logistics that go into day-to-day -day operations, it's one thing to be able to make sure that you have people lined up who would be who are able to perform the tasks. It's another thing to see to it that money gets um, diverted to those projects. And we have to keep in mind that uh, we don't have a modern-day Congress, but the Congress that we have, it's the best we've got, but um, it's one of those... Um, <laughs> Congresses that uh, even in times of war is not always 100% uh, unified. Now, how many uh, men do you think 
rode with um, Nathaniel Green in his ride down south. I thought he preferred to travel light, which also would have meant going alone. But it does, it, it turns out that Nathaniel Green did have company. It turns out that there were three men whom joined uh, Nathaniel Green in his ride down south. One of those three men happened to be Major General Baron Friedrich von Steuben. Doesn't that name ring a bell? You know, whenever I think of Major General Baron Friedrich von Steuben, I think of uh, Valley Forge, just outside of Philadelphia. It was Baron Friedrich von Steuben whose uh, drill tactics reinvigorated the Continental Army into becoming a relevant um, operating force, um, which um, evolved about during the harsh winter encampment of 1777 to 1778. And the other two men were just uh, assistants. You know, in other words, we might as well think of them as uh, bodyguards for Nathaniel Green and Baron von Steuben. But there is really, in a sense, besides Nathaniel Green, you have three other men whom accompany uh, Green on his ride south. Now, where exactly down south was General Green's destination? I'll give you some choices. Uh, was it uh, Charleston, South Carolina? Was it Savannah, Georgia? Was it Augusta, Georgia, or was it Hillsborough, North Carolina? Believe it or not, folks, the uh, actual answer is Hillsborough, North Carolina. I think it would be fair to say that most of us would have said Charleston, South Carolina, because Charleston, South Carolina has far more uh, recognition probably than, say, Hillsborough. I should point out that Hillsborough, North Carolina, is located in present-day Orange County, which is also home to Chapel Hill or I should say uh, the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And, of course, I will have to point out that uh, my wife is a diehard uh, UNC uh, Tar Hill fan. And why not? I mean, she's grown up being a Tar Hill fan all of her life. Uh, her dad and brother are both Carolina grads, so uh, I'll point that out uh, in recognition. Hillsborough, North Carolina, though, was where the Continental Army ended up retreating to following the aftermath of the Camden Battle debacle on August the 16th of 1780. Whenever you hear the word debacle, folks, what do you think of? Was it a success or a disaster? Disaster. Uh, I will uh, talk more about the Camden uh, Battle debacle in the next uh, podcast uh, series because it is important to understand why that battle was a debacle and why the Continental Army had um, entered into the state that it um, allowed itself to get into prior to Nathaniel Green's arrival and around the time that he did arrive. Whom had uh, Nathaniel Green looked up to for guidance from a militaristic perspective? This probably should come as a no-brainer, but I'm just going to um, throw out the answer. General George Washington. Nathaniel Green and George Washington often confided in one another on many major matters pertaining to the war. So it's fair to say that Nathaniel Green is part of uh, Washington's inner circle, an elite inner circle that Washington can trust, that Washington feels good confiding with things about that pertain to the war. You know, 
I'm not saying that Washington is a man whom doesn't care about the outsiders. It's just that uh, when you are in that inner circle, you want to make sure that whom you're sharing information with stays within the confines. And then you have to decide for yourself, okay, if I've shared this within the confines, when is it appropriate and necessary for me to, to share information uh, that is appropriate and necessary to share, but doing so by getting the consent from someone above, like the general. So, for, once Nathaniel Green departs south, will he and George Washington see each other again anytime soon? Believe it or not, folks, when General Nathan, when Nathaniel Green departs south, it's going to be at least three years might be three years at best before they see each other again. So we have to remember, folks, there's no telephones. Uh, we're not able to call or text and say, hey, we just arrived to Hillsborough, North Carolina. Oh, uh, George, I'm, I'm going to miss you, man. The only way that Nathaniel Green can communicate with George Washington is by letter. So, so therefore, neither one of these men are going to have any direct contact with one another for quite a good while. George Washington is going to uh, remain up north, whereas Nathaniel Green was journeying into an uncharted path. And many people have to wonder: he's journeying into an, um, he's going into an, uh, a path that, he, for all we know, it could be a disastrous path. But at the same time, is this? The, is this the right man at the right time? Is this going to be the man whom can break the curse in the South and be the one whom can be the savior for the Continental Army? Did Generals Green, Von Steuben, and their two assistants stop elsewhere south of Philadelphia en route to Hillsboro, North Carolina? Yes, they did. And we have to remember, folks, there's no Interstate 95 there is no uh, Capitol Beltway. <laughs> there is no um, US 360 or 60 or 29. You know, it's so easy to take roads for granted now in today's time, but we have to remember, folks, they, there were roads back then, but they weren't sophisticated and advanced like we know of uh, in today's time. So yes, Generals Green, Von Steuben, and their two assistants did stop elsewhere south of Philadelphia en route to Hillsborough, North Carolina. They made stops most notably in the capitals of Annapolis, Maryland, and Richmond, Virginia, where Green himself emphasized to government officials in both states the need for greater troop numbers, as well as provisions that were currently facing shortages down south, most notably South Carolina, where a lot of um, heavy, intense fighting has been taking place. Well, it is fair to say, though, that, that none of the 13 states have been immune from, um, from saying, oh, well, we've been fortunate that we haven't had to send anybody. For the most part, I would say that the majority of the 13 states have been in a situation where let me rephrase this. The majority of the 13 states have been in situations where they've had to um, send their men um, to other places to fight in uh, skirmishes and battles uh, where, where uh, an abundance of extra men were needed. After all, at, uh, at the uh, Battle of Bunker Hill in Massachusetts uh, from uh, June 
17th of 1775, it was more than just Massachusetts men fighting. You had men fighting from New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Rhode Island. That tells you right there, geographical makeup and a regional conflict. So early on, that was seen as more of a New England conflict. But now that we're down in the South, the war has impacted now, we could say, all 13 colonies, but the greatest focus now is on the South. So what I found interesting is, um, and for those of you who were with me when we did the series on Jack Jewett, a revolutionary writer, uh, who was governor of Virginia at the time of, uh, of the British invasion of South? Well, there was two governors, uh, Patrick Henry, whose uh, term ended uh, right after the start of 1779, and Thomas Jefferson takes his place. Patrick Henry had done a a very good, effective job as a wartime governor. Thomas Jefferson um, met with more mixed results. However, uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, continued to follow what Patrick Henry had been doing, and that, uh, like Patrick Henry, Governor Jefferson had already authorized the use of troops in his state to go south into South Carolina, well before General Washington had chosen Nathaniel Green as the new Southern commander. Think about it. If all the activity is going down, taking place in South Carolina, but you don't really have a whole lot of hostilities in Virginia, send your men where you know the greatest uh, need is. Because we have to keep in mind that just because there's conflict and tension going on in South Carolina, it doesn't mean that every man in South Carolina is willing to fight. We've got men in South Carolina whom are still neutral. They're not taking a side they just don't want to be involved in the conflict. You know, you can always stay neutral, but for so long, because at some point you're going to take a side. You, and it means pleasing one group, and it's going to mean um, ticking off the other. Well, uh, March 29th to May 12th of 1780, and this will probably be talked about at some other point in another podcast, but I'll mention it here. The Siege of Charleston occurred. It was a battle that... Um, probably never should have been fought on the, from, the America, from the continental uh, perspective. The commander was um, General uh, Benjamin Lincoln. Well, as a matter of fact, I probably am getting a little too uh, far ahead of the game. As a matter of fact, if I mention too much more about it, then, I, then there would not be a need for me to um, mention any more about it. So let's hold that thought and I will mention uh, some more here shortly about why um, the Siege of Charleston should not have happened. But the bottom line is, is that uh, the Siege of Charleston you know, took place between March 29th and, and May 12th of 1780, but it, it did involve a large number of soldiers from Virginia. So if that tells you anything right there, Virginia, of course, being the largest of the 13 colonies, um, Governors Henry and uh, Jefferson have, most notably Governor Henry, um, because he became Virginia's first non-royal governor in 1776, just before uh, Congress had officially declared its um, official separation from England. So, where do you, if you if you are um, a soldier in Virginia, where would you have seen fighting up north? Uh, New York, most notably uh, with the with the disastrous New York campaign, Trenton, Princeton, Saratoga, New York from 1777, 
um, Germantown and Brandywine in 1777, and then uh, Monmouth Courthouse in 1778, June of 1778, that is. But if you were um, from Virginia and you saw action south of Virginia, how about uh, South Carolina? Well, it's possible that some Virginians may have seen themselves down in Savannah, Georgia in um, late 1778. But the majority of the Virginians would have seen themselves in South Carolina. So Virginia's leaders are doing their part in assisting the greater war effort. But the bigger problem now is that Virginia's leaders are facing dilemmas that they never thought would happen, that never in, in a million years would have uh, ever come across from within their state. Think about it. Now they've got to take into consideration how are they going to defend the frontiers along the uh, western uh, t along in the western part of the state how are they going to ensure that people living in the Shenandoah Valley would be protected from a from an Indian uprising w that would have been um, persuaded by the British most notably like the Shawnees and the Delawares from coming into the valley and not only destroying um, people's settlements but uh, you know holding people hostage but also uh, teaming up with the British and the British to uh, have control of that western territory. And then how about along the Chesapeake Bay? You know, every so often there has been a skirmish with British forces along the uh, Chesapeake Bay waters in Virginia. Their bigger question is, is, okay, if British forces did escape South Carolina and pretty much um, annihilated what was left of the Continental Army in South Carolina, they've got a quick move up to Virginia and given that Virginia doesn't have a whole lot of troops to defend its borders, yeah, it could be seen as a slam-dunk uh, victory for uh, British forces. So there are a lot of dilemmas even facing the biggest of the 13 colonies, being Virginia. Now, what were some common issues for which states contended with from the Revolutionary War's onset in 1775 going into 1780? You know... We get this assumption that, oh, the government was doing everything. Well, Congress was doing what it could do, but states were asked to do, to do their part, which wasn't a bad thing, but even states themselves had some of the same issues that Congress had. It turns out that many of the states faced debt issues, meaning that they had troubles behind getting broad public support for raising taxes, okay? If you're already in the red, meaning you got a deficit, then for some people, they might think to themselves, then is raising taxes going to be the answer to the problem? Because it just means that that's more money that our government is spending that it doesn't already have. Well, sure, raising taxes could generate revenue, but how much revenue based upon the existing state of deficit? So, you, so for one, the states could be having trouble, yes, getting broad public support for raising taxes, largely in part because the objective here with raising taxes is to generate revenue that would go towards supporting the greater war effort. And besides money issues, facing a majority of the 13 states, I think this one probably is, says it all. People from within each state weren't always on the same page and showing full-scale unity behind, not only behind separation from England, 
but also where their loyalty stood. Because isn't it fair to say that if not everyone was on, if not everyone showed full-scale unity behind separation from England, isn't it fair to say that their loyalties would often dictate whom was and wasn't looking after the greater welfare of the Continental Army? Yes. And it is fair to say that Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, was probably by far the largest city in colonial America with a heavy loyalist population. And it's also fair to say that there were... Um, New York City uh, had a, a fairly good-sized loyalist population. Charleston, South Carolina had uh, a decent-sized loyalist population. Boston had some somewhat of a loyalist population, but, um, but it was rather small compared to Philadelphia. So we, we have to keep in mind that, yes, I could be in full support of, um, of my state government raising taxes to, to generate uh, revenue that would go towards helping Congress assist in funding the war, but my neighbors next to me would want no funding all because of their loyalty. And wouldn't it be fair to say if my neighbors don't want any funding for the war, their loyalties are to king and country. So let's just keep in mind that, you know, yes, um, the states themselves were dealing with populations of people that were either in thirds or, or were somewhere just past thirds. But the bottom line is, is that not everyone was in complete unity not only over separation from England, but they weren't in complete unity over the greater welfare of the Continental Army. And history has shown that there were instances, most notably at Valley Forge during um, the winter encampment, when food rations were so dire that uh, soldiers from the Continental Army soldiers um, went out into um, went out foraging for food and often found themselves in conflict with um, farmers. And it got so bad to the point where Continental soldiers took out their muskets and rifles and held families hostage, demanding, for their fam demanding that the families turn over their livestock. So can you imagine being a family farmer? Here you've got to think about feeding your family, and it's brutally cold outside, and all of a sudden you are face-to-face -face with a group of soldiers... And it just wasn't on the Continental Army side. It was also on the British side, too. So think about it. If you're neutral, you really are in a no-win situation. So we have to keep in mind that um, not everyone was looking after the greater welfare of the greater cause and that of the Continental Army, especially if you were neutral and loyalist. Congress funded the war, but often found itself doing so in the red, being that of deficits, spending or I should say, uh, borrowing money not available at the present moment, only to pay it back at another time. So funding, um, war funding was often seen as a joint effort between Congress and the states. That's really the only way that maybe in the long run our uh, cause prevailed, because if Congress and the states could not have worked together in funding this war, then how would we have ever been able to have achieved, in the long run, our ultimate objective? Not just declaring separation from England, but by defeating the mightiest empire on a battlefield. Not just in, on, not just on one battlefield, but over time, 
being able to wear down the British to where we finally were able to get them into a place where they could no longer, um, really to where they could no longer get the enforcements they needed and also their means of uh, retreating across the ocean were blocked off. Had the southern colonies seen large-scale fighting on their home turf between April of 1775 to June of 1778? Do many of you all think the southern colonies had seen any kind of large-scale fighting? There were a couple of uh, skirmishes or battles in the South, uh, most notably in December of 1775 at Great Bridge, Virginia, which is now present-day uh, Chesapeake. There was also um, a skirmish or a battle, the first Battle of Charleston, South Carolina, that occurred in 1776 where uh, the Patriots emerged victorious. So there were a couple of battles, but these were not uh, the same kind of battles that got the same attention as, say, um, Lexington, Concord, Bunker Hill, uh, the New York campaign, or let alone Trenton, Princeton. So, in other words, there, were, there was some activity, but it wasn't uh, major. It wasn't enough to um, warrant um, widespread focus to say, hey, we need greater presence of troops down south. So everything, however, changed prior to 1778's end, most notably come December 29th of that year when British forces captured Savannah, Georgia, with minimal opposition resistance. Okay, so if you're Congress and now all of a sudden Savannah, Georgia has fallen, that should be the first signs of red flags. Because what city in South Carolina is not... It's north of Savannah, but it's not too far from Savannah. Charleston. So if Savannah falls, what could possibly be the next southern city to fall that would have great, even more greater implications? Charleston, South Carolina. So let's revert back to uh, March 29th to May 12th of 1780, the Siege of Charleston. This was one of these uh, battles or sieges, let alone that should never have happened. And the only reason I say that is because, for one, uh, the commander of the Southern Continental Army was General Benjamin Lincoln, a very um, res well-respected man whom uh, was not afraid to take on a fight. However, he was outnumbered from the start. The British had at least four to 5,000 more men than uh, Lincoln himself had. Lincoln was faced with uh, two dilemma, with two choices. He was, in a, he was in a real dilemma, but he had two choices. Number one, I can stay and fight this out and prove to the people of South Carolina and to uh, all of colonial America that I, didn't, um, that I didn't run away. In other words, that I was not a coward. I gave it my all. I fought till the very end. And I can still come away knowing that I didn't uh, leave anything on the table. Or the other option would be not to have done anything and just automatically surrendered. But for Benjamin Lincoln, he knew that in his own mind that if he automatically surrendered, then people would frown upon him and say, hey, you didn't uh, give your men a chance to fight. You didn't give, it's almost as if you're selling us out. Well, Benjamin Lincoln did um, confront um, 
the British forces in a, in a siege of Charleston that uh, lasted um, almost uh, about just shy of seven weeks. Sadly, um, the siege of Charleston did not um, fall into our favor. The siege itself resulted in the largest surrender of Continental Army forces, numbering roughly um, 5,400 troops. The loss of Charleston to British forces meant now that America's southernmost port was now in enemy hands. You know, when I think of uh, port cities leading up to uh, the American Revolution, I think of Boston, I think of Philadelphia, New York. But if I had to pick, uh, pick one city in the south that was uh, the jewel and the most uh, prosperous of port cities, it was Charleston. Now that Charleston is in British hands... What's, what's going to be next for the Americans? It's not so much a question of what city could fall next, but, but the greater um, the likelihood of the British succeeding, the greater the likelihood that this uh, war, for all that it was worth, will have meant nothing, and now you know, we could return back into becoming subjects to the crown. Now, who would become uh, Benjamin Lincoln's replacement? We have one other man to go before Nathaniel Green, and his name was General Horatio Gates. He often got the nickname Granny Gates. He was an old hardliner, and if you ever see a, watch a documentary on General Horatio Gates through the History Channel, you'll understand why he's called Granny Gates. I can tell you this much, he's a stubborn man. And his stubbornness has come, has evolved over some period of time. Um, he's, George Washington's not thrilled about Horatio Gates being the new Southern Continental Army's commander. It was not his choice, but Congress went behind Washington's back and gave Horatio Gates the nod. The re, one of the reasons for this was because um, Horatio Gates back in October of 1777, had triumphed, his forces had triumphed at Saratoga, New York, where their victory over British General John Burgoyne's forces helped persuade, helped persuade a fellow um, American diplomat, Benjamin Franklin, whom was in France. Once Franklin learned of the American victory at Saratoga, he was able to finally persuade and convince French leaders to join the American cause for independence by becoming allies, not only just being allies with America, but but be, but joining a greater cause in um, in the fight against England. Remember, folks, France. This is a great opportunity for France now because France uh, lost all of its territory in the Ohio Valley, Great Lakes region from the French and Indian War, aka Seven Years' War. All that territory was ceded to Britain. This is a great way now for France to really be able to stick it back to uh, the, the British. So, by the time uh, Horatio Gates arrives, by the time he is the Southern Continental Army's commander, he's not able to um, bring the same kind of luck down south as he had up in uh, Saratoga. He was not able to restore troop morale, and come August of 1780, Gates' forces were pretty much, 
It didn't happen, but it was pretty much close enough to it. They were almost annihilated at Camden, uh, west of Charleston, more towards uh, uh, the back country, but more of what we call in the heart of uh, central South Carolina, Camden being north of Columbia, uh, South Carolina's present-day capital. So Horatio Gates's forces were routed at Camden, and the Southern Warfront campaign is now in even worse, in even more dire shape, dire shape rather, I should say. And as I said earlier, and I'll say it again when I'm on the air again next, we'll talk more about this uh, Camden debacle and why it's so significant. Significant um, because it turns out that uh, while it was a debacle, there was some good that came out of it for the Continental Army which I know seems hard to believe, but believe me, there was some good that came out of it. From the Revolutionary Wars beginning in April of 1775 into late 1780, America's war system is nowhere intact, meaning the average man, or I should say the average continental soldier, more often than not bore the brunt of all misfortunes from a whole host of things. How about like d general dysfunction amongst officers? Of course, when I think of general dysfunction, I think of uh, Horatio Gates's uh, poor leadership in the uh, Southern campaign. And uh, I can't say that General Benjamin Lincoln was a dysfunctional officer under no circumstances, but the decision to, um, but the decision not to have surrendered early on. Uh, cost uh, the Southern Continental Army dearly because so many men were taken prisoners, so many men were forced to um, take up um, oaths of um, neutrality, oaths of, um, they were required to uh, take up a parole agreement where they would agree not to fight um, throughout the duration of the uh, conflict in the South. So had uh, Benjamin Lincoln surrendered early on, None of this stuff would have happened. So yes, you've got some dysfunction amongst officers, and it doesn't help that there are desertions, because even down south there are, there are probably soldiers who have deserted over to the British side, maybe not in the same numbers like there were in New York and um, leading up to Trenton, but there are desertions and commitments that are constantly fluctuating. So... Okay, if the Continental Army's on a roll where they've won a couple of battles, yeah, morale's going to be high. People are want to people are going to want to be invested in this cause. All of a sudden, we start losing a couple of battles. Oh, I don't know how this is going to go. Maybe I'm just not interested in fighting anymore. So the problem is that you've got soldiers who, if they can't make a full commitment, they make half-hearted commitments where. They're only going to come, they're only going to be there for a while, and then they're just going to leave on their own terms. And when I think of soldiers coming and going, I think of militiamen. Militiamen, they're only thinking, not all militiamen, but uh, George Washington didn't have a whole lot of regards for militiamen because he saw them as the type who were nothing more than uh, the I, me, myself type of mentality. Washington knew that in order for an army to function properly, it had to be us, we, ourselves. However, in order for militiamen or units of militia to function, what do they need? Well, they need guidance, they need structure, but they need leaders whom can, whom can set the tone properly, 
but also can set a tone that is one that basically tells militiamen, hey, look, this is what's to be expected and, and what is to be tolerated, but this is what's not to be tolerated. And what's not to be tolerated is their coming and going whenever they feel free to do so. So, yeah, we're dealing with half-hearted commitments that cause a lot of uh, fluctuation. So the Continental Army is facing a constant, they're facing constant uphill battles in maintaining adequate troop numbers. However, officers were the ones that often found themselves dependent upon using troops, yes, whom constantly came and went. So we didn't really have, we did have soldiers who started from the time the, sh the shots were first fired round world at Lexington and Concord until the very end, but they were in a small minority. But it is fair to say that the majority of soldiers who fought were the ones that often came and went. They came for a period of time, they left, but then found their found their found themselves back into uh, fighting for the greater cause when you know morale was restored, most notably at Trenton and Princeton. It was just a constant game of fluctuations. And I still have to wonder to myself, how did we ever pull this thing off? General Washington had, uh, as I mentioned earlier, had opposed Congress's choice in choosing General Gates to replace General Lincoln. Uh, but however, after the Camden debacle, General Washington was finally given more flexibility and that where Congress finally woke up to their senses and realized that, hey, look, maybe we better listen to the general, and maybe we better let the general be the one to make the decision as to whom he wants down south leading what is left of a uh, continental army that is on the brink of collapse. Okay, so they listen. They're moving on up, and Congress now has given George Washington the power to choose a new commander in replacing Horatio Gates, and that being none other than Major General Nathaniel Green. So it is good to say that uh, progress is being made. Well, when did Nathaniel Green find himself inheriting the position of Quartermaster General? Actually, I take it back. I well, actually, here, never mind. <laughs> He uh, found himself inheriting the position of quartermaster general during uh, the winter of 1778 at Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. So it is good to know that it's good to know a little bit of a uh, past on Nathaniel Green. So, yes, he became a uh, quartermaster uh, general during that uh, harsh uh, winter encampment at Valley Forge. General uh, Washington was in need of a new replacement. I think it's fair to say that Washington was always in need of a new replacement because even Washington himself found it hard at times to know what was going on behind closed doors. And he even, Washington himself even had issues with uh, trusting, with people whom he thought he could trust only for those people to turn their backs on him. It did happen, folks. I mean, to someone like George Washington. I mean, I, if I was alive back then, I mean, I would have seen to it that I never betrayed, would have betrayed Washington. But believe me, there were people high up in the ranks of the, uh, not just of the Continental Army, 
but w- but within a high-ranking status based upon their position, whom did betray Washington and were punished for their actions. So Washington um, saw to it that Green himself could, could take on this post, given his um, given his leadership skills that had already uh, been uh, put into play from previous battlefield, or I should say battle activities. So by the time uh, Nathaniel Green um, leaves to go south, uh, Washington, he's already shorthanded on resources, uh, most notably supplies, for providing Nathaniel Green in his journey southward. But one thing that Washington did oversee that Nathaniel Green himself requested was the need for light infantry troops. Why would Nathaniel Green want light infantry troops uh, down south? Well, for one, we got to remember Nathaniel Green is going into uncharted territory, but Green himself already knows what he's going to have to do uh, differently in order to uh, keep the fighting in South Carolina and prevent uh, the British from uh, advancing sooner Given that they're on a roll, Green knows he's got to find a way to keep them down uh, further south uh, longer than anticipated. So Nathaniel Green knows that he's going to have to uh, light infantry folks. They're not soldiers that are carrying less equipment. They're carrying equipment, but it's not a whole lot of equipment. They're also light infantry is requiring soldiers under that uh, heading to be able to move from point A to point B. Um, faster than the, than the conventional army could. He wants to be able to use this light infantry uh, to be able to strike uh, the enemy when, when it's least expected. So basically um, the need for light infantry is essential because Nathaniel Green is um, going to be going through terrain never seen or encountered upon before. And when I refer to terrain here, folks, how about a multitude of rivers, creeks, swamps. And it's one thing for, you know, if you're going to cross uh, these waters, what do you need, folks? You, you, need a, you need a boat. But if you don't have a boat, what else do you need? How about a horse? So if you need a horse, how about cavalry? This, to me, is revolutionary here. Would General Green come upon meeting other officers while en route to Hillsborough, North Carolina? Yes. While traveling between Richmond, Virginia and the confines of the Roanoke River, General Green met up with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Edward Carrington, an artillery officer from Virginia, whose military services in the Revolutionary War dated back to June of 1778, where his Virginia troops held their grounds against fierce British attacks at Monmouth, New Jersey. Lieutenant Colonel Carrington uh, would be the one, believe it or not, who actually replaced General Baron von Steuben. And it wasn't because Baron von Steuben was a bad officer. Steuben uh, stayed behind in Richmond, Virginia, to assist in commanding operations in um, Virginia's um, defense preparations. General Green uh, was advised by the North Carolina Board of War that General Horatio Gates' army was stationed in ended up getting stationed in Charlotte versus Hillsborough. This was a surprise, but it might make sense. The reason why they ended up relocating to Charlotte was because there were greater um, abundancy of uh, food supplies. And while in Salisbury, 
North Carolina, which is outside of Charlotte. Uh, Nathaniel Green met up with a fellow named General Edward Stevens. And Salisbury, um, being uh, southwest of the Adkin River, but southwest of the Adkin River, while at Salisbury, that was where Nathaniel Green began inquiring about um, the Yadkin River's uh, waterway accessibilities. So finally, okay, Nathaniel Green left Philadelphia on uh, November 3rd, 1780. When did he arrive into uh, Charlotte, North Carolina? December 2nd. That means, folks, that it took Nathaniel Green about four weeks to get from uh, Pennsylvania to North Carolina. Which isn't bad, but four weeks, folks. So General Nathaniel Green arrived into Charlotte, North Carolina, December 2nd, 1780, where he took the place of General Horatio Gates as the Southern Continental Army commander. He named Lieutenant Colonel Edward Carrington of Virginia Deputy Quartermaster General. Whom did General Green go to in Charlotte for conducting assignments along the Catawba River? which flowed north to south. How about Colonel Thaddeus Kajusko? There is a place in Mississippi called Kajusko, Mississippi, outside of Jackson, and that, and that is named for Colonel Thaddeus Kajusko. He was already the Southern Army's head engineer, and Nathaniel Green was looking for a thorough, detailed report of how the Catawba River itself could be used throughout the seasons in time of war. Whom went about uh, conducting uh, surveying missions along the Dan River that flowed from Virginia to North Carolina? How about Captain John Smith? This isn't the same Captain John Smith from uh, Jamestown, 1607, but nonetheless, there it was Captain John Smith. He served under Lieutenant Colonel Edward Carrington, and it turns out that both of these men agreed that canoes would become uh, the better methods of handling the Dan River's uh, shallower waters and getting goods, or rather I should say provisions, moved from one end to another. Captain Smith's report on the Dan River was submitted to General Green on December 25th of 1780, which included a proposal in setting up a commissary store, commissary meaning that it would house essential provisions like clothing and food, at a ferry landing nearby. Uh, the report also included other ferry stations and crossings further north, as well as uh, mileage by land to the Yadkin River. Talk about being thoroughly detailed here, folks, but hey, look, if you're going to have success, you need to, be, you need to have as many thorough details as there is possible in order to uh, stall the enemy from advancing sooner, but also just keeping them in place to where over time you you can do whatever it takes to wear them down. Well, we got to uh, wrap up here shortly, but let's find out about this other fella because he's not like George Washington, but he's got some amazing um, accomplishments. Uh, who's uh, William Davy? Well, for one, his main occupation was that of becoming a lawyer, he graduated from Princeton, or I should say the College of New Jersey, in 1776. But prior to 1780, he formed a North Carolina Militia Cavalry Troop Regiment in 1778, where um, his rank wrote, became that of Major. He saw combat in the uh, Waxhaws region after the Siege of Charleston, 
course, when I think of Waxhaws, I think of the infamous rally cry of remember the Waxhaws uh, with regards to what Colonel Banastray Tarleton and his men had done in terms of massacring over a hundred um, Continental Army soldiers. The Battle of Camden saw Major Davy save, this is important here, save large supplies or provisions of various valuables that could have otherwise fallen into enemy hands, and Major Davy did this all in the means of defying General Gates's instructions, which were the opposite. Tell you, General Gates just didn't like anyone doing the exact opposite of him. It's fair to say that he is he was the equivalent of a modern day control freak. General Green uh, was in need of a commissary officer, and a commissary officer was one whom oversaw the acquirings of essentials from food to clothing. And who accepted that post prior to 1780s end, folks? None other than Mr. William Davy. A a great choice, right person, right time. Well, wouldn't it be fair to say that from the moment Nathaniel Green arrived into North Carolina, that not one minute was wasted in exploring all things essential that waterways, a.k.a. rivers, offered considering what lied at stake, not just seasonally, but long-term given the Continental Army's objectives pertain to transportation of goods and soldiers in terrain not seen before. If anybody thinks opposite, all I can say is something wouldn't be right with those people. But the bottom line is, is that Nathaniel Green is on a mission. And this is a mission that requires not squandering time, not taking time for granted, but making every minute count. Because for Nathaniel Green, he knows that what is left of the Continental Army is a matter of make or break. This is um, a matter of um, life and death for the greater cause of independence in America. It is a matter of, um, of whether or not we're going to live to see another day. For Nathaniel Green, this isn't, his being in, uh, in the South is not about um, mustering up the men and, and fighting in a, in a huge engagement. Because for Nathaniel Green, all it would take is one major engagement, one more major engagement, and we lose there there will be no Continental Army. So in order to reinvent the Continental Army, it's going to mean doing things irregular, not just today and not just for tomorrow, but irregular for as long as it takes to wear down the enemy. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, and when I'm on the air again next, we are going to talk a little bit more about uh, Camden, uh, but we will talk about some other things. But it is important to understand how this debacle in Camden came to be, but also how there was some good that came out of it because there were other officers whom were in different um, places that were not taken prisoner that were actually spared from uh, actual fighting in Camden. And it is fair to say that uh, one man who was spared by going out of his way to save large supplies and provisions was uh, Major William uh, Davy. So he's just a, a unique example of someone willing to risk his life on the line, even when it means defying a general's instructions, not just defying your own general's instructions, but defying someone whom uh, is unwilling to uh, compromise and is unwilling to um, change uh, battlefield tactics. 
Well, thank you for your time. As always, I look forward to being back on the air again next and wherever you all may be. Uh, stay safe. Take care.